Okay. All right. Well, good afternoon, all. Uh, I, I trust the last three weeks have been really encouraging. I've offered plenty of opportunity for for you to reflect on the way that we do community in this place, um, particularly the ways that we aim to love all people, right, regardless of age or background. I think. Uh, Often the church provides us a space where we can sort of practice the love of God uh, to make mistakes and try earnestly and to listen to one another uh, and to encourage one another uh, to, you know, to be people of light and love wherever we spend our time throughout our weeks. And I know I was really struck. I think it was um, maybe it was when Max was sharing, Dave. I was really struck by the ways that the concerns of some of our younger members were utterly familiar to me, right? Um, how can I be kind to people who make it difficult? How do I listen to God when my life is full of noise and worry? Um, you know, we, we learn new language and strategies for responding to life's challenges, but life is complex from kind of day one. And it's, a, it's, it's good to journey with each other and to share our wisdom and our failures. Um, and I thought it was really appropriate. It kind of happened by chance, so I didn't plan this. But anyway, it's appropriate that we're following a time of conversation across generations with a close look at the Psalms. And I think of all the different kinds of literature in the Bible, the Psalms are the most like a conversation. So for those of you who have read the newsletter for this week, you'll know that I reflected a little bit on this idea. At their heart, the Psalms are about speech about the human need to speak to God and to trust that he hears us. Our experience of those times that God seems to speak back, right, in word and in deed, um, those times that God's part of the conversation seems totally silent. Um, and the Psalms themselves are the voices of those who have died, those who have gone before us, who are like that great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12, testifying as we pray just then to God's goodness and to our future hope. The Psalms are full of dialogue. There are multiple speakers. Sometimes there's a named poet, right, like David. Um, sometimes God is speaking. Sometimes it's just I. Sometimes it's the community or Israel. Sometimes the voices are the voices of mountains or trees or all of creation. And of course, sometimes the voices are our own um, as we practiced just now. Because we see in the Psalms an articulation of our hope or our despair, our cries for help, our songs of praise. So I've got up here on the screen um, a pattern that has been set by a guy called Walter Brueggemann, um, who wrote a really beautiful book on the Psalms. And if you're interested in reading it, I can send you a copy of it. Um, following a long tradition of writers who have noticed that the Psalms are full of kind of a whole lot of different kinds of poetry, but similar types. Um, Brueggemann suggests that we can see the whole of the Psalms as falling into these three categories. And I like this, uh, not just because it follows the nice sort of, you know, three-point thing that a sermon's meant to do, um, but it's really useful. Psalms of orientation, Psalms of disorientation, and Psalms of the new orientation. And I was, I was summarizing these categories to Jan over the phone um, a couple of days ago, and I realized that even though these labels are not labels that we would necessarily use or that our like, younger members of the church would use, I think that anyone would recognize them when you talk about them. So orientation, and I've got this here. Uh, am I standing in anyone's way by standing here? That's okay. Um, 
Orientation refers to seasons of well-being that lead us to be thankful. These are the Psalms that speak of the joy and delight and the reliability of God um, and his rule. And you'll notice that today's Psalm was definitely in that category. Then there are the Psalms of disorientation that refer to painful seasons of suffering, alienation and loneliness. And these Psalms are full of rage and self-pity and fear and resentment. And we often call them laments. And then there are the Psalms of new orientation, those times when joy breaks through despair, where we or God's people are made newly aware of the gifts of God. We might think of this as the movement from darkness into light. These Psalms are full of bold language. God is making things new. Now, I'm guessing that anyone who has lived life here, which is most of us, I suspect, uh, know that our seasons in life are not arranged that neatly in experience. There might be stability at home uh, and chaos at work. There might be the promise of new things, but then there's the pain of something that still lingers past mistakes or wrongs. And we're always moving through them as well. Um, And sometimes we move from this place of orientation, of well-being and assurance, into disorientation, right? We lose a job or we fall ill or we have um, someone who we love is experiencing pain. Sometimes this movement can be really abrupt, but other times it is gradual. And it's only slowly that we think, wow, all of my old confidence in God is gone. It's the dismantling of our hope, and we might feel something like guilt, or shame, or lonely, or despairing. or Maybe even we feel that rage and hatred for God and the world. And then sometimes the shift is from disorientation into new orientation. We're surprised by something new. We finally understand something that has long eluded us. We, live, we leave a pit that maybe we didn't anticipate leaving, and we can only attributed to God's intervention. Um, I mentioned this, I I feel, a few weeks ago, but as it happens, the very first sermon I ever preached at H3O was about that movement, kind of out of the pit, um, describing an experience of deep despair and a new season of hope. And my prayer at that time was this prayer of, I do believe, but help my unbelief, God. And as that really long night, which had endured for way too long, Ended. I was filled with this new sense of wonder and hope. It was that despair that gave way to something like new life. So one outcome, I think, of doing this, I know that this is sort of arbitrary, but I, the one reason that I wanted to do this is because you can't leave any Psalms out. I know I was talking to Dave about this because he was wondering if I was going to get to any of the sticky ones. Uh, and I don't know about, yeah, which is a typical Dave thing to us. <laughs> but I don't, know about, I don't know about you, but I often read over the sticky psalms, right? Um, they're full of that really fierce anger or grim despair. Um, or it might be that you read over the ones that are too joyful, the psalms that seem just way too self-assured about God's goodness. Um, they don't really get the world. Uh, but the psalms reflect a life of faith in God, right? And we are, of course, children of, I guess you could call us children of the Enlightenment, of this obsession with progress, a culture that's uncomfortable with anything that isn't moving upward or getting more or always winning, as Trump would put it. But that doesn't really describe anyone's experience, right? That's no one's experience. 
And the beautiful hope of the Psalms is very often rooted in the darkness of the Psalms. It's one of the reasons that when we read the Psalms, we see a reflection of the cross. It's the light that comes into darkness. It's the victory out of death. So my hope in this series is that it gives us space as a community, as individuals who know and love one another, to speak to God and one another with the same earnestness and openness that the Psalms speak with. They offer us the fullness, I think, of the language of faith. And this week we're beginning in orientation. We're beginning in a place where God's goodness appears certain and where the community of believers celebrate his trustworthiness. Over the next few weeks, we're going to follow the movement of any believer's life. We're going into disorientation and then finally into the hope of a new orientation. And I think that's why we're calling this Psalms of the Kingdom. They speak to us of life as it is. Sometimes life is settled and sure. Sometimes it is deeply fractured and dark, but it's always lived in the hope of new life. So Psalm 145. A psalm of praise of David. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. So Psalm 145 begins with this opening. Uh, and it says this... Oh, sorry. Yes, stay there. It says this, a psalm of praise... It's the only psalm, incidentally, in the whole Psalter, that is the whole book of Psalms, called this. It has the title, Praise. And it's worthy, I think, of this title, right? It is the mingling of David's personal praise with the praise of the generations and the praise of all creatures. The opening begins in the first person. I will exalt you, my God. And the praise that David speaks of is to take place every day, forever and ever. Um, and I should have had Renee read these words, but I'm not going to read them. From The Hebrew for praise has been translated in a bunch of ways here. We have exalt and extol, bless and praise. And they point to the outpouring of praise for a God whose greatness can't be fathomed, right? You can't say enough. But they also talk about, I think, a different posture of praise. To exalt or to extol means to lift up. To bless means to consecrate or make holy. And it's often associated with the bending of a knee in prayer. And in Hebrew, the poem, the, the poem is an acrostic. This is something that we, don't, we shouldn't really do in English because they tend to be very bad poems. Um, but in this case, it's every letter of the Hebrew alphabet in sequence begins each line of the psalm. And it's clear why. This is the fullness and sufficiency of God, right? It's like this is A to Z. God is good. And we are to praise him every day, forever and ever. So the next set of lines. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome deeds, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. Um, and this is where it makes sense to jump from our intergenerational into this, right? Because David moves from 
I into an intergenerational posture. One generation must declare to the next the mighty acts of God in order that the praise of God continues into the future. Can I say, this maybe seems really obvious to you, but I found this really challenging. Um, Praise helps us preserve faith as it's passed from one generation to another. And this is the point that's made in in those verses there. See, the knowledge of God, yes, is preserved in large part as we teach and as we instruct. But the living faith endures through this work of proclamation, of telling. Each generation will testify to God's mighty works, his glorious majesty, and the might of his awe-inspiring deeds. See, this psalm makes it clear that us, right, communities of worship, We continue our faith as we join together and praise God, as we tell stories of his wonderful deeds, as we sing of his righteousness, as we meditate together on what he has done in our lives and what he will do. And of course, this is also what the psalm is doing itself. It's speaking of God's greatness. It's celebrating his faithfulness. Psalms of orientation are expressions of faith in the trustworthiness of God. And so the first challenge that arises for me as I was reading this is, am I speaking these things to people, right? Am I saying this? Am I testifying to people in this community of God's goodness, right? Does this make up part of our conversation with one another? Because this is the way that we continue and preserve our faith. And... And I haven't put this here, but this is kind of my plan for the next series. I, I, and I, I'm going to implicate a whole lot of us. That's the hope. Um, so that we get to do this very work of sharing. Um, yeah, and we'll talk more about that. That's a little teaser. Um, okay, so the next slides. The psalm continues with a reflection on something. This is, this is deep past. If anyone here is interested in, um, in jazz, they talk about this thing called a deep cut. It's like the music that no one would listen to normally, but if you're really into it, you'd know it. This is a deep cut out of Israel. This is the oldest theological hope that they have about God's goodness. They learned this in the Exodus. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. I mean, these are verses that we could probably linger on forever. But there are some really simple things I want to draw out. The characteristics listed here, they're not about God's splendor or might or wonder, but they're about his heart, right? His grace, his compassion, his love. The trust we talk about in community is not just a trust that we have from our theology. Our trust in God comes from our relationship with him and our, on our reliance on him for our daily bread. This psalm at this moment, I think, reminds us of that childlike faith that, that Christ speaks about in Matthew 18. We trust in God because he has shown himself to be trustworthy. And this is, this is I had to ask Renee if I should say this. Um, Because this is the bit where, for me, a big tension arises. And I'm still trying to work this out. The Psalms of Orientation reflect a settled, confident trust in God, right? Walter Brueggemann pointed an issue out that really startled me as I read through it. 
They reflect a sense of order that probably comes from somebody who is well-off, economically secure, and politically significant. So this is Brueggemann here. Such religious conviction comes from those who experience life as good, generous, and reliable. This does not make these poems suspect, but it permits us to read them knowingly, for not everyone experiences life in this way and can speak so boldly about it. This really hit me when I read it. Uh, The confidence with which we as a community speak of God's provision and generosity might, this is to say that there is a danger, that it might simply be a celebration of our own comfort and a justification of having a lot while others have very little. Psalms of orientation can affirm a way of being in the world that a lot of people in this world do not experience. This is, I think, why it is so important to speak about the Psalms in this overall sense as they move us through seasons of life, as they uphold not only the order but the disorder, as they speak about despair and also about hope. Psalm 145 offers a deep and affirming picture of the truth of God's goodness. But we must be careful not to use it to justify our own inaction in loving those whose lives are not so well ordered. See, the Psalms as a whole are are pretty impatient with any kind of easy spirituality. Frequently, as you would know, they turn to questions of justice and righteousness They address the king. They ask God, what is the deal with the state of your kingdom? In this way, we should see Psalm 145, not simply as a psalm that reflects God's present goodness, but also as a picture of hope for those who do not yet share in that experience of rest and order. It declares confidently that what is promised will be. It is a picture of hopefulness for those whose lives are disoriented. And for us, as ambassadors of the kingdom, right, and this is the whole series, the whole year, we yearn to see all people grafted in, to experience the rights and freedoms of those who are called children of God. Okay. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down, the eyes of all look to you and give, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. So in this part of Psalm 145, I think we see the social purpose of the Psalms, right? I mean, I don't know about you. I can't sit and read these comfortably in my abundance. The power of the king is turned towards those who are uncared for. Those who are bowed down, fallen, hungry, and in need. God's power is turned toward those who lack power. If at the beginning of the Psalms we sang to one another about God's goodness, at this point in the Psalm we're reminded of what that goodness looks like, which is hope for the hopeless. And so for those of us who do speak in truth when we say God has been good to me. He has provided for me. For those of us who hear this psalm and what we're filled with is gratitude and thanks for what God has done. At this point, we're reminded that this goodness that we have endured, that we experience, that's for all people. Psalms of orientation should not settle us, right, in our comfort. 
They should unsettle us until all of our communities know this same love and assurance. I was thinking about this uh, in light of some of the work that I've been doing recently around education in prisons. And I was, I was faced with this question, and people have asked me this explicitly, you know, why care about incarcerated people, right? Shouldn't prisons be places where there is no comfort? Um, surely they're places where the goodness and compassion of God are put on hold for a period of time. But, I, but Psalm 145, as I was preparing this sermon, it just reminded me, we are communities in a bigger community. And, and our assurance is not just for us alone. The price of freedom was Christ on a tree, and in those final moments, he turns his face toward a convicted man. When we speak of God's goodness, when we sing songs of his trustworthiness, when we commend his works from one generation to another, we're also asking that his kingdom extends and covers his whole, this whole world, that it reaches into every dark place, right? Even into the walls of a cell. We pray, God, uphold all who fall and lift up all who are bowed down. All right, so the end of this psalm, well, almost the end. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. God is faithful to those who are his, who call on him, who cry out. And then verse 20, right? Verse 20 has the only direct mention of the wicked in the psalm. And I, I think that there's a tendency to just want to like erase this when we read it. But it would hardly be a psalm of life and it would hardly be a psalm of David without this shadow. The freedom of the psalm is expressed as the rule of a righteous king as a king who tempers judgment with love. This paradox runs through so many of the Psalms. And I want to make the point here that these Psalms were used as liturgy, right? These were Psalms that were used in the context of community. And the role that these Psalms played, in part, was as a kind of social control. The community here is reminded that if you want to live a life of orientation and freedom, you have to live within the boundaries of the king. And so for us, right, who live as children of a new king, of a new kingdom, how do we take this warning of allegiance and wickedness? Uh, and I don't think we can do away with it. Jamie reminded me recently that that's kind of like having a kingdom without a king, right? But we must ask who our king is and what it looks like to pledge allegiance to him and to his purposes for our world. As we speak the words of this psalm to one another, we're reminded of our joy and our obligation to live lives that praise God. Lives that are full of his love and faithfulness to all people. And so it ends with um, what's sometimes called a doxology, which is the next slide. Yeah. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. And so the psalm ends, right, as it began, as an acrostic ought to, in praise. Praise that is personal, my mouth, and universal, every creature. For us in H3O, I think that this psalm of orientation, simply put, reminds us to praise God. 
knowing what we know, seeing the provision of God, hoping in the kingdom that is to come, covered by the grace of our good king, what can we do but praise? And that praise is something that we share across the generations. It is a living faith that we preserve as we speak it to one another. It is a reminder to us of the disorientation of our community around us and the call for us to orient our lives around the kingdom, yearning to see others know and experience the hope and assurance of God. So let us share, right? Let us share our stories of God's faithfulness with one another. Let us praise God as he works in our communities. Let praise move us to work together, to see his kingdom come, to hope for all people. And now, um, and I might invite Jamie up here because this is what we do. We join together with all creation, do we not? And we praise his name forever and ever and ever. Amen.